Hello and welcome to the Tech Human podcast. I am Jonathan Ebsworth, one of the founders of the techhuman.org website. In this podcast, I'll be talking with guests about the impact of different aspects of technology on human life. Today, we're beginning the first in an occasional series exploring aspects of algorithms. What are they? How are they being used and why do they matter? And we'll hear more about these themes in coming months. My friend and techhuman.org co-founder, Professor John Wyatt, is joining me to see if we can begin to shed some light on what these seemingly obscure algorithms are and consider how we should respond to their growing use in our daily lives. John, hello. Hi, Jonathan. It's good to be here. It's great to talk. I'd be better in person, but wonders of technology have enabled us to to do this almost as well remotely. I think that podcasts are one of those uh, routes of being able to um, keep a conversation and 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 reach out to other people. Yes, I, 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 I'm amazed actually how well technology has served us through this protracted period of of, of upheaval. John, perhaps you'd introduce yourself and explain how we began to talk together and, and, and why we're having this conversation. Sure. Well, yes, my, my background is as a medic. Uh, I spent uh, many years working as a, as a paediatrician, a specialist in the care of newborn babies at a big intensive care unit in central London at UCL. And it was really through my work there I became increasingly interested in medical ethics, but also in the way that technology changes our understanding of the world and and in particular how it changes our understanding of what it means to be human and um, I've always been interested in computers in artificial intelligence and so on and then seeing this whole uh, explosion of of technology in in uh, computer-based technology has made me think that this is the next big issue which is which we as a human race are going to face and so for the last three or four years I've really been focusing on artificial intelligence and and the questions and challenges that it's raising. So what about you? What, what's your background? So I came from almost the opposite end of the, that, that spectrum. I am a technologist. I've spent my whole working life uh, building systems, mostly for business. And in the last few years, I too have been wrestling with the impact of the technology that I'm putting together on really all of human life. And as as we enter a period which the World Economic Forum has labelled the fourth industrial revolution, the digital revolution, which is powered to a large degree by artificial intelligence, I can see the whole of life being transformed. And as a technologist, I want to take some responsibility for the impact of, of stuff that I and, and my profession get up to. And it was really in a meeting that you and I had, a chance meeting we had, um, talking to some teachers about the impact of technology that we met um, and really found found that we had a, a shared interest in particularly understanding how all of this would change human life and how our faith and orthodox Christianity might help us get some, some insight into the world of technology and how we as human beings, as, as created beings, could live better. Uh, then perhaps we are just being swept along by by this tidal wave. Yes, and so um, we we struck up a friendship, and and that led to creating a new website called Tech Human, uh, which is still very much work in progress. But um, we see this as a, a, an opportunity for we've called it hosting the conversation about uh, technology and particularly artificial intelligence. 
Um, we're not starting with a very strong uh, predetermined view, either being very much in favour or very much against, but we do see the importance of these issues and the need to have a place where different perspectives, different opinions can be um, offered, particularly in the context of the Christian faith. Yes, and, and I, I certainly found connecting my faith to my work very difficult um, and and our conversations actually have, have been very helpful to me in helping me recognise that that technology isn't just a neutral thing and it just depends whether you use it for good or bad, whether it, it, it is or isn't a good thing. But actually it comes with a load of baggage uh, that has direct consequences and actually understanding some of the, that baggage is very important uh, in terms of making sense of things. Yes, and uh, analogy I quite often like to use is, is the saying that it, if you want to understand what water is, don't ask a fish. And uh, you know that's the problem: is that we're so immersed in technology, it's so pervasive that it's almost invisible to us. We don't see the way that it's changing and and even distorting our, our understanding of the world and our understanding of ourselves. So, so I I think this is quite a challenge. You know, it's not an easy topic. I've, I find trying to get my head around some of these issues very very challenging and complex. But I'm utterly convinced it, it's really important for this this time. In, in, in world history this time in our own uh, f- futures. I think there's a tendency because it's complicated that we go and ask the fish, the technologists, um, to explain it all and to explain the consequences. And whilst we may understand how it interacts and how it fits, the pieces fit together, as technologists weren't ill-equipped to comment on how it impacts human life, um, which is why we need people like you, John, I think. <laughs> Well, I think we need everybody, don't we? Be, um, in, a, in a similar vein, I've often said about medical ethics and matters of life and death, these things are far too important to leave to the medics. Uh, and I think artificial intelligence is too important to leave to the technologists. And everybody has a perspective. Everybody's coming from somewhere. But, uh, but we need a place where, where we can debate some of these issues and... and um, I think particularly the challenge for Christians, of course, is that is that many of the issues we're facing are, are genuinely new. You know, we, we haven't had to face some of these issues at all. The Christian history, going back 2,000 years, um, has, has, has faced many challenges. But the challenges being raised by artificial intelligence, uh, in, to some extent, are completely new. And, and therefore, I think all of us who are Christians are, are in some sense, scrabbling around, trying to find a way... To, um, to, to develop a Christian response. I think in order to have a helpful conversation, the first thing we need to do is, is to get ourselves to the same sort of place where we have a shared understanding of what it is we're talking about. And that's part of what this podcast series is going to try to do, is, is to perhaps help us all to, to get to a good starting point so we can have a meaningful conversation about how this fits into our lives. Yeah, so so today we're going to talk about algorithms, and um, I think it's a word which which trips off the tongue. We hear it all the time, and yet I suspect that many of us are, are a bit hazy about actually what an algorithm really is. So so let me ask you, um, what's your definition, or how would you explain it to someone? What what is an algorithm? So at its at its most basic, an algorithm uh, is an algebraic expression. So x plus 2 equals y is is an algorithm i'm afraid so many people <laughs> gave up 
algebra in their teens. You've now X plus Y. Ah, that sounds terrible. Uh, so, so why should I be interested in algebra? The, the the world of digital technology is is reaching further and further into our lives, and almost all computer logic is driven by these sorts of expressions. They may be explicit or they may be implicit, but they, they're being applied more and more to our lives. And this is why it matters. So I think most of us, even, even people you're in my age, John, are um, familiar with the use of algorithms to credit score, to, to decide whether we can get a mortgage or not. But actually, um, I'm not so sure that, that people are aware that the products Amazon recommend to you are calculated by algorithms. What appears in your newsfeed on Facebook is calculated by algorithms. Um, what Netflix offers you as, as things that you might be interested in is all driven by algorithms. Um, almost everywhere we look, we find algorithms. A part of the problem, isn't it, that although conceptually uh, the idea of a, of a simple formula um, seems not that difficult. These algorithms can end up being extraordinarily complex, uh, involving thousands and thousands of lines of computer code, uh, and so much so that that even the people who write them are not at all clear how how they work. I, I've heard it said that the the Google search engine, which is a, a very sophisticated algorithm, uh, it is so fiendishly complex that even the Google engineers themselves don't really understand how it's working. No, and and you talked about artificial intelligence. Um, as we get into some of the, the most sophisticated forms of artificial intelligence, we truly do not understand how some of that works uh, works out, how it's making these decisions. It just does. Um, and so yeah, it is fiendishly complicated. Um, and what we need to do is, is, is perhaps step back into some slightly simpler space to try and make sense of what algorithms are, and then use that to build a, a, a more considered discussion of some of the more sensitive applications of algorithms. So we thought we'd start off by looking at uh, the use of algorithms in, in education and in particular look at what was described as a great fiasco or debacle which happened earlier this year in, in the UK in, in, in August. If I, I look at the um, public exams in, in actually pretty much the whole of Great Britain, separate systems in Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, England, we were locked down in March um, nationally. It was clear that public exams could not be sat in, in the normal way. Uh, and so very quickly, those public examinations were cancelled. And so a means had to be found to award grades to the candidates. In the case of A-levels, and, and let's focus on A-levels because it's a, it's a kind of finite thing we can get our arms around, um, there are just over 700,000 entries uh, for A-levels um, and therefore 700,000 results had to be found that were reasonable, that they, they, they maintained the value of exams so we couldn't have massive grade inflation. Um, that they could be transparent, people could understand how they'd got the the grade that they were being given, that they were fair, that they reflected as well they could the, the ability of the students, and they, that the answers were reached legally in terms of handling uh, personal data. 
So just to explain to um, to people who are not from the UK that what the, why is the A level so important? It's because it's the final grade of your high school career, isn't it? And it determines, in particular, uh, your ability to get into university or colleges of further education. Uh, it, it's a, it becomes an, an extremely important measure of 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 how you how you've done and what your potential is for the future. Yes, and, and and particularly for the most competitive courses like uh, medicine and veterinary science, failure to get the grades that you anticipated simply means that door is shut. Um, so it has life potentially lifelong consequences for for young people. And, and just stepping aside a minute, what, why are you interested in this? I mean, you're a technologist. You know, why have you got interested in education? Um. I was interested in this because it, for me, it felt like a, a, a wonderful case study of the power of algorithms applied to, to human life, but one that was at a manageable scale. So it's it's one thing to talk about a number of billion Facebook users and, and what's happening with them, but it's a bit easier for me, at least, to get my head around what's happening to 720,000 a-level candidate uh, entries, I should say, uh, and what happened to the the process to get them to to grades. Okay, so it's a case study where uh, computer algorithms were used uh, to to overcome a problem that the, the the actual exams could not be done. So the answer is let's use the clever computers, and they'll come up with a simulated uh, estimated grade for each pupil. That that was the idea. Um, and it's quite reasonably started with with the the question. So, what data do we have? And and the in England it was Ofqual, the the examination qualification standards body that drove this process, and similar processes were followed in, in the other parts of the United Kingdom. And the data they had was any mock exams that a student had already completed, which typically would have been done before we hit lockdown. Um, perhaps the historic performance of, of that student in earlier exams and the performance of the academic institution they attended. Um, the one other piece of data that I think Ofqual hoped was going to help them a lot was the grades that their teachers um thought they were going to get. This became known as the centre-assessed grade. So each academic institution moder moderated those those scores and submitted them as, we think our cohort of pupils are going to get this distribution of grades. Um, and the idea, I think, the hope was that they could use, rely very heavily on those centre-assessed grades. Unfortunately, there was a problem. So just, just to clarify, were they individual grades that every teacher was asked... Joe blogs. How's they going to do in maths? Yes. How they're going to do in English, yes. and so on. And then they they summed all the teachers in a particular school. Yeah, let's say they had twenty five people sitting A level maths. Uh, there would be twenty five anticipated grades for that school submitted to Ofqual, saying these are the grades we think Joe, Mary, Sanjay are going to get, uh, and. This was then submitted as an input into the process, along with the other data that, that I've described. Okay, but they could then look at all the grades from one particular school and compare those with all the grades from another particular school, for instance. Indeed. And when they added up all of those centre-assessed grades, uh, they found they'd got a big problem. And the big problem was, uh, in the previous year, they A-star and A grades were about 25% of the, the total 
uh, entries. When they looked at the centre assessed grades at, at a national level, it was 37.7% were A star or A grades. So 50% more um, A stars and A's were being suggested uh, were going to come out of an exam cohort. And that's completely unacceptable from the, the qualification standards body's point of view. So the teachers were being much more optimistic um, than compared to the actual grades that had previously been obtained. Um, and and have we any idea why they were being so much more optimistic? Yeah, I, I think it's, it is conjecture, um, but I suspect probably two, two things are, are at play here. One is um, human optimism uh, and a belief in the, the best for your students um, and perhaps anticipating that there was going to be some downward moderation. So we better get things um, up so that there's some room to push grades down. Um, but a 50% increase year on year in A-star A grades is is beyond any statistical probability. Um, you wouldn't ever have a genius candidate uh, cohort coming through at that level when you've got uh, an entry number of over 700,000. It's just not not possible, not plausible. So they realised that there was a problem, that they couldn't just take the teacher grades um, at face value because you'd, you'd have far too many candidates then getting the highest levels uh, of A-levels and that would swamp the universities. Correct. Uh, I think in political circles, uh, there's a huge worry about devaluing the currency of the these most the highest level of examinations that, that pupils in England study. Yes, yeah, so so because the A level grade is is used as an objective marker of people's academic ability, um, if if the whole value of an of an A or an A star grade is being devalued, um, it, it becomes just much less useful and and much less reliable. Yes, and you know I. To, to give Ofqual some credit, what they didn't do is go and shut themselves in a darkened room and pop out and say, here's the answer and, and award the grades. They did go through uh, a fairly extensive consultation. They had about 100 days from the point at which the country was locked down, the exams were cancelled, to having to issue the, the A-level results in early, mid-August. Um, and in, I think it was May, they had a four-week consultation where they said, this is what we're proposing to do. Um, what do you think? And, and they got a lot of responses and much of the feedback they took on board. Um, not all of it, but much of it. Uh, and, and yet, despite all that, when the results were actually announced, there was a terrible outcry. So, so why was that? The terrible outcry was based on on the, the 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 standard cry of "it's not fair." Now we knew this was going to happen, and the reason we knew it was going to happen is the Scottish exam system runs about two weeks ahead of the English one, and it went through exactly the same path. Uh, their results came out, I think, the third or fourth of August, um, and. I think the belief in government circles was, oh, there'll be a few outliers. We can handle those through appeal. But what it turned out to be, there was there was a very, very large number of, of young people who simply didn't get the grades that they expected. And it would appear reasonably expected they were going to get, which meant you know, 
people who thought they were going to medical school or vet school or to some of the the high entry um, courses were simply losing out on those opportunities. And after a day or two in Scotland, it became clear uh, that this was not a sustainable position. So in fact, I think there's something like 9th or 10th of August, Scotland said, we're going to revert to the teacher-assessed grades. England said, no, we're going to go ahead with our algorithm because we've worked this out. It's it's all been done very carefully. It, it, it's all fair. And we had an exact repeat um, of, of the issue. So, um, yeah, it was very predictable. And then within a week, they had to revert to the centre-assessed grades, which, of course, meant they had 50% more A-stars and A's than had been achieved in a previous year. So we ended up in the in the very place we hoped we weren't going to. So, so what do we learn from this, apart from the fact that if you really want to muck things up, use a computer? <laughs> and I think, actually, I think that's a very, a very good message. Um, what it made me realise was that one of the things we in technology, and perhaps in education as well, aren't very good at doing, is seeing the unforeseen consequences. We're quite good at looking at the macro picture, but not looking at the individual consequences on a, on a human being. Um, so these exam results are fundamental to those young people's future lives. Uh, and in the interest of trying to protect the value of those, those A-level A qualifications, what we ended up doing uh, uh, at a national level was sacrificing individual hopes and aspirations in the interest of maintaining currency, uh, the value of that currency. Um, so I think the first thing is that we're just not good at seeing the, the consequences that we don't think about. We get very blinkered. Yeah, and unexpected, unanticipated consequences seems to be a fundamental feature of of this modern digital technology. I think that story is repeated so many times. Um, and uh, we, we could think of many examples of it, and I'm sure it's something we'll come back to in the future. But I, I think it... And, and by the very fact that these outcomes and, and um, are, are unanticipated, it, it, you know, I, I think it's, it's easy to blame the technologists. Um, surprisingly, not surprisingly, they, they don't have 2020 sight. They can't see what unexpected impact uh, might, might be. I mean, how, how might one, as a technologist, mitigate the situation? How, how, how might you take it into account? So, that's the right answer. But if I look at medicine as a, an analogue for, for this, we have to go through extensive testing for any new treatment, firstly, to check that it seems to be effective, and secondly, that it doesn't do any harm or doesn't do um, unexpected harm, and that if there are any bad side effects, that they're proportionate, appropriate, you know, consistent with the problem we're trying to fix in the first place. And those protocols are very, very well prescribed at a global, well, at an international level. So the FDA in the States and the HRA, and you you know all the stuff better than I do. Um, and I can't help wondering whether there aren't lessons to learn from the way that we take drug treatments out to market to applying algorithms to at least large-scale sensitive decisions. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. And I, and I think there's a lot in what you say, um, because basically of terrible disasters in the past with drugs. Uh, you mean there have been a whole number of terrible disasters where new drugs turned out to have unexpected side effects. So the thalidomide crisis is, is, is one which many people are aware of where a drug 
given to pregnant women as just as a tranquilizer turned out to have catastrophic effects on the developing fetus. Um, because of that, uh, these kind of scandals over the years are, are very um, rigorous um, uh, technique has developed of uh, testing uh, new drugs uh, for safety and efficacy, um, very rigorous standards before they can be released at all. And then even once they, they are released, they're, they're regarded as an investigational uh, product. They have to be special monitoring um, for side effects and so on. And, and when you compare that with the way that uh, computer programs are rolled out um, in, in very sensitive areas of life, like, like education or the justice system or, or whatever, uh, none of that kind of certification process exists, does it, or, or um, is available? No, and 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 I know from experience that that actually testing of of computer systems is not always as reliable as it should be. That so we can't always be certain it's going to do exactly what we thought it was going to do. But when it comes to the unexpected consequences, we almost never look for that in in the world of technology. And you know, one of the things that I found attractive about the drug thing was not just the discipline protocols of of getting it to market, uh, but also that the adverse event handling. Um, once it's got to market, that if there are problems, that there is a protocol in place that says, this is how you report it, this is how it's investigated, and if there's a problem, this is what we do about it, um, which for IT systems, there's nothing like that. That's absolutely right. And as a doctor, I've frequently used that method where I've been giving a medication to a particular patient and there's been an obvious drug reaction and then you there are special forms to fill out and notification and um, um, there's a yeah a, a very sophisticated system of continuous uh, monitoring of and and informing doctors of, of what the latest information is on, on drugs so so I, I it, and it has been discussed hasn't it having it has. having some kind of regulatory authority and also having some kind of certification uh, that before a program is released, um, it has to be tested and to meet to certain quality standards. Yes, and, and and there are some questions. Whenever I've raised this sort of suggestion, the instant response I've had from most people is, oh, but nothing would ever get to market. Nothing, we won't ever innovate because that process for drugs takes a ridiculously long time and costs too much money. But we've seen how when the pressure's on, you can move fast with COVID vaccines um, and the speed at which it is possible to do something very sensitive and still get it out at scale. So I'm not sure that the it's too slow is for something that is sensitive is necessarily a valid rebuttal. Yes, and, and maybe just as in medicine, it's it's the awful disasters which then lead to... Um, you know, to positive outcomes eventually, and I wouldn't be at all surprised in the education world is 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 that if a new algorithm is designed in the future for um, changing and and modifying examination grades and so on, that um, that something like that process would would now go through. That people have learnt learnt the lesson. Yeah, and I, I think one of the other challenges we've got to face is that not every algorithm is going to be as sensitive as this one. Um, you know, if, if we're talking about an algorithm that governs Candy Crush as a, as a 
game on on a, a, a mobile phone, that's really unimportant and doesn't really matter too much whether the algorithm is is working exactly as it intended or not. So maybe we don't have to apply this to every single algorithm, but determine those ones that are sensitive that affect people's lives, and say for those ones at least we need to to go through some better, more rigorous process of certification and testing. Yes, and I think another uh, issue that I've been aware of is is that certainly in the criminal justice system, many of the algorithms that are used are commercially sensitive and therefore protected by um, confidentiality agreements, and so. Um, that's often been a problem, hasn't it? That it isn't possible even for other technologists to get access to the actual source code or to understand what a, what an algorithm is doing. No, it's it's very hard, and and I'm not a lawyer, but I, I've been told that that protecting algorithms under standard IP law is is actually very difficult to do. So you have to simply shroud them in confidentiality. Um, which does make testing very, very difficult. Um, but just because something's hard, I don't think gives us an excuse to ignore the problems. And I think these are now so pervasive, we need to do something, at least around sensitive algorithms. Yes, and, and certainly in the UK and in Europe, I think the obvious approach is is to have a, a government or a quango, a, a regulatory authority an official regulatory authority, which is given legal power to compel um, manufacturers and and uh, technologists to uh, to go through a regulatory process before um, these algorithms in certain sensitive areas are are released into the wild. Yes, and and one other aspect of algorithms in general, which I did come up in the context of the A level. Um, process was about bias or fairness, um, whether that's uh, to deal with discrimination in, in, with social groups or racial groups or, frankly, any group. The, one of the problems in, in the A-level algorithm issue was that they had differential weighting uh, based on the cohort size from an individual school. So a school that only perhaps put five entries in, uh, the centre assessed grades got a heavier Waiting than if it was a very large institution that had perhaps 20, 30, 40, 50 candidates going forward for an exam, where it was moderated much more heavily. And the view reported was that that meant that smaller schools, perhaps private schools, actually were given an advantage in comparison to perhaps larger bodies, which were typically the, the state-funded schools. This idea of bias in algorithms is, is a very important one. I think it's very socially sensitive at the moment. So, John, you know, from your point of view, are there any particular lessons that we can learn from the examination fiasco uh, from a Christian point of view that, that perhaps we can take forward in, into other discussions and thoughts? Well, I think an immediate uh, thought which occurs to me is that, uh, I think as you mentioned a bit earlier, that um, when we when we receive um, news which we find very difficult, if it's another human being who's made a judgment, um, we can we we find it easier to accept, um, even if we don't agree with it. You know, if our teacher says, "Well, I'm really sorry, but you know, my conclusion is X, Y, Z," 
Um, whereas if it's a machine that's doing this, uh, there's something about our humanity which it seems to um, oppose, you know. And I think from a Christian point of view, this fits with this idea that we are ultimately created for relationships with other human beings and relationships with God himself. In other words, for relationships between persons. And when we have an impersonal machine saying the machine has decided, you know, and, and it's saying something of immense significance to me, it somehow goes against my humanity, the way that I'm made. I'm made to be able to engage with human beings. I actually, it's something rather weird about getting a final uh, decision f from a machine. Yes, I think that's very, very true. It's hard, it's very hard to um, deal with emotionally and actually hard to challenge. Um, the machine becomes unanswerable, doesn't it? Yes, and I can't follow the reasoning. So, so with this, when it's a human being, even if I find it very, very painful, I can at least ask the teacher or the judge or whoever it is, the doctor, why? Why did you make that decision? What? What? What was the basis on which it is made? And I can, I can at least attempt to follow it with myself and understand it and see the world through this other person's eyes. But when the machine is just saying, well, the algorithm said 4.76 and 4.76 is below the grade end of story uh, there's no way i can follow that through i can understand it i can i can come to terms with it emotionally so often we're struggling to find how on earth do we respond as christians but i think the first thing is we really need to understand the world we live in and we can't short circuit the process of trying to develop a christian response the first thing is to understand and then the second thing is to say well then how do we respond from the point of view of the Christian faith. John, thanks so much. Look forward to our next conversation. Thanks a lot. Look, I'm looking forward to it. That's all for our first episode. Thanks so much for joining us. In our next conversation, we'll look at some of the technology opportunities and issues that have been thrown up by the series of lockdowns that have been running here in the UK and around much of the world sporadically over the last 12 months or so. We will return to the world of algorithms in future episodes, looking at their use in criminal justice, in business, areas like recruitment, credit control, insurance, touching almost every aspect of our daily lives. We know there are some big social issues that will come up, perhaps none more sensitive than algorithmic bias and algorithmic unreliability. In all these episodes, we're trying to understand how we as followers of Jesus can live well in a society that's dominated by technology. Thank you for joining us. For those of you who are interested in finding out more about these issues, please do go to www.techhuman.org. You'll find an article on the public examination fiasco which explains some of the issues in a little more detail. You will also find other articles, both short and long, as well as an interesting range of book reviews. If you have any subjects you'd like us to look at, please let me know at jonathan at techhuman.org. We'd love to hear from you.